going to start a little study of the meaning of the terms we associate with knowledge. So I selected two terms that represent perhaps the polarized opposites of learning. They are knowledge and wisdom. Now knowledge is something we all know about. It is conveyed to us through the public school system. We live it every day. Everyone who comes into the world practically is trained into some phase of it. Even Aboriginal people have their own standards of knowledge. And knowledge is very largely concerned with the problem of getting along in this world. How to live in the environment which no one really fits into exactly. Knowledge, therefore, is the knowledge of the folk. It is the thing we all depend upon for a common agreement on the ordinary subjects of daily existence. This idea of knowledge, however, is very service, is very surface. It is not depth, it is not wisdom, it is not insight. It is the communication of the common decisions of people. It is the way we have decided to teach our children. And what we are going to teach them is the knowledge that we know. And the knowledge that we know, I might mention, is not very good. We have a great deal of education, but what are we teaching? Are we teaching the individual to grow, or are we trying to train him for a job? And in most cases, knowledge today is training for a job. It is not only training for a job, but tra training for a very impermanent job. By the time we get the fellow trained, the job isn't there, which is, of course, a little embarrassing. We are noticing this particularly in the age of computers. Many, many young people who went into stenographic schools and learned to run a typewriter find that they are not going to gain very much from that education. The very instruments that they were taught upon are now obsolete. So much of no so-called knowledge is obsolete. It lingers on as long as there is any excuse for it. And there are many arts and crafts that have become obsolete in the present century. I think the old story of the buggy whip is probably as good as any. A man invented a buggy whip. It was the finest thing that was ever invented. He worked with it, built a factory, manufactured them, and spent 20 years selling bobby whips. And then the car came along. And in a very short time, there were only a few luxury families that had carriages and horses anymore. He had outlived his own invention. He had gradually depended upon something that was passing. And knowledge is, for the most part, passing. He does not have any solid foundations in eternity. Knowledge is a way of looking at something, a particular way. This way may change any day. This also is a way of approximating our understanding of what is wise and what is not wise. Knowledge gives us the history of the activities of our people. It gives us a certain history of our own nation and our own world. But this history deals with situations that no longer exist. 
or if they do exist, to become so subordinated that we gain very little from continuing to maintain them. So knowledge, we have to say, is a surface thing. It is adapted to the whims of the hour. It is adjusted to the needs of the moment. And this is what we get when we go to public school. We do not get from the schooling any broad depth of understanding concerning human nature. We do not learn any high ideals about the destiny of man. We are not even allowed to bring in any religious factors, but they will disturb the so-called placid sur surface of the existing chaos. <laughs> this situation, it means that we have knowledge. Knowledge that will fit only in certain, certain situations. We send a child to school, and they bring home the paper and tell us what they're learning. This learning they're getting now is not what we got when we were the children. We were the children. Changes have come. Everything is different. The old ways are outgrown. Or the old facilities are no longer available. Now, as we live today in this environment, we realize that we are gradually changing the world in which we live. We are changing the surface of the earth. We are crowding communities. We are endangering the basic utilities of life. We keep right on going, trying to continue a policy that is gradually cutting life out from under us. So this is what we have to think about. Therefore, what we commonly call knowledge is simply a story of doing what we always have done as nearly as possible, or continuing the way of doing as we do now, which is probably not possible. But at the particular moment we graduate the young folks from high school, they will get a picture of our present condition with all the negative factors overlooked and the positive factors exaggerated. So out of this we come to a surface knowledge, a kind of superficial effort to estimate our own responsibility in a world which takes no responsibility for anything. We find in all the arts we find this change constantly taking place. In the, in the sciences, they are not immune. Religious theories change. Architecture changes. And as we look around us, most of these changes appear to be for the worst. We're not doing as well as we did. Our buildings do not look as beautiful as they did in the Renaissance. Our music is not as good as it was in the lyric 19th century. Everything seems to be getting brittle, disillusioned, and more or less discouraged. So we build in a discouragement into the educational system. We decree that all these things must pass away. And we have great publicity over this. We have tremendous talk about correcting this and changing that and building something else. But it all represents what we would call knowledge. Knowledge is our effort to understand things as it is, or to perpetuate through education policies that are almost deficient themselves. So, this is one way of looking at it. And also, all knowledge is from the outside. We get our knowledge out of books. We get the, our knowledge out of listening. We get our knowledge out of looking.
But everything is as of now. It is as of the individual facing the future by estimating the exact circumstances which are in force the day he enters the future. He, by the time he's ready to leave the future, or rather let the future leave him, it may be entirely different. So now we have a problem of education. Well, how are we going to educate people for a world that may not exist by the time they get out of school? This doesn't mean the world is going to fall apart, but it means that policies are going to change, values are going to change, and gradually and inevitably materialism is going to slip away. And of course, knowledge is essentially anchored in materialism. It is the way in which we try to understand the kind of a world we have created. It has little or nothing to do with the world as it really is. It is a world deprived of its beauties, of its values, of its friendships, of its affections, and of its community projects. It is a world of rugged individualism, moving largely on a basis of profit, and determined definitely to perpetuate the conditions as they are now, which they can't do. So we go around and we study. We, uh, we take courses in language because maybe we will want one of them one of these days. A second language is a major asset today, which in itself is a proof that regardless how we think or what we believe, we are moving into a larger one-world unity in which one language is not enough. We also have arts that are fighting for survival. We have that tremendously inconsistent situation in which we are paying two and a half million dollars for a Picasso sketch. And at the same time, we are paying four million dollars for a genuine Rubens. These things are absolutely irresponsible. The sketch and the Rubens are not even in the same classification. And yet we have put a new value on both, money. And the uh, same thing is happening all over the country and all over the world. The auction galleries are completely uh, swamped with people willing to spend fabulous sums for something they don't even understand. Now, why don't they understand it? Why don't we understand art in its best sense? Why don't we understand music in its best sense? Because it isn't taught. If you want any of these specialties, you have to go to a specialized institution which specializes in them. And you will then be fortunate if you find one with sufficient idealism to make the period of study worthwhile. So we now have knowledge. We have knowledge in science. But they, every time we look at knowledge now, we are sort of told that this is the ultimate. This is the absolute fulfillment of all these dreams. If we get this space platform out, it is going to change the course of ages. The most thing it's probably going to do is to run us further short in essential commodities. There is no reason to believe that if we put this spaceship out there long enough, it's going to solve anything. Because we're not out there. We're here. And we're using up the precious resources of here so that we can spend a few weeks out there which isn't particularly valuable. We have all kinds of projects that are built upon what we think now. 
Our idea of the conquest of space is that we're going to be able to colonize it or find a possible use for it in the form of a garbage pail out there. We are believing definitely that space is something we're going to exploit as we've exploited everything else. And yet all the way along, we do not really solve anything. We do not understand anything. We are born ignorant and we die ignorant. And in between, we learn to make a living and a few learn to make a fortune. And when the whole thing is shaken down, where are we? The great values do not grow because we do not permit them to grow. We have no real reason to believe that we want to improve. We really only just want to stay the way we are and have more. We want to be a little wealthier, we'd like to be a little more famous, and we'd like a good solid contract with some studio for a million dollars a year. The idea of really growing, of improving ourselves. The question I talked to a young man not long ago, I said, why don't you try improving yourself? Well, he says, do you know anyone who's doing any better than I am? <laughs> why should I improve myself? Nobody else does. And this is what is happening to a world that has a public school system, has all kinds of advantages, and is staffed by individuals who are completely devoid of real understanding of what value constitutes. Where are the philosophers of the 20th century? Where will be the philosophers of the 21st century? Are they all going to do what they are doing now, keep their noses so close to the grindstone that they can't see anything beyond the mess they are creating now? This all ends in the problem that knowledge is not the end. Knowledge is not a real end of anything. It is simply a becoming aware of the way things are being mishandled at the moment. It also has something to do with the idea that if we can make the same mistakes, we may be able to be as rich as the people we don't like. <laughs> but this is going to be a little difficult. So we have now this wide right world, art, sciences, nations, academies, institutes, everything you can think of, all dedicated to some great program and no great program. No actual realization. The only thing we have is a great mass movement against which a few thoughtful individuals have braced themselves in an effort to survive the common uh, contagion. So we ought to have to rem remember that when science says it has a cure for something, it will have a different cure next year. When we buy something because it is best, that there was never one like it. In two years, there will be one much better. All the way along, these things go. But when it comes to the values of life, is the American home any stronger than it was? Are our young people growing up clean? Are the various forms of business we're involved in, are they honorable? Uh, is the average person building a character that he can live with for the rest of his life? Are we fair to the children or the aged? Or to the sick or the well? To the rich or the poor? Everything goes along carefully covering up the weaknesses of every phase of it. And under the general heading of knowledge, we place a limitation upon what we can think, what we can believe, and how we should interpret the facts of life. 
So now, here and there, there is a breaking through into another dimension. Knowledge is beginning to mean something that solves something, rather than simply perpetuates. We know that young people are going to school. Knowledge now is how to get sufficient insights to get a good job. Also, while this is happening, the moral structure of youth is collapsing. And with this fall, falls also most of the older generation. We do not recognize that by living on the surface of thinking, we are condemning ourselves uh, to the errors and fallacies of surface living. We are not here to live on the surface of the mind. We are not here to live only on the pleasures of the mind, or the pleasures of the flesh, or the pleasures of the heart, or the pleasures of luxury. We are here as individuals to improve, to grow, to think, and to understand life. We are also here, if possible, to see that we can pass on to another generation a world a little better for our having been here, rather than a world falling apart because of our mistaken understanding. Now, on the opposite side of this is wisdom. Now, how shall we define wisdom? Wisdom is no longer a surface. Wisdom is now an interpretation of value. Every bit of so-called knowledge is capable of being examined by wisdom. There is nothing that we do, nothing that we have, nothing that we hope that does not in some way tie into the concept of wisdom. And wisdom can be suggested as meaning. It is the something that amounts to something. It is something that makes an experience more important than 30 days in jail. It is something that makes it more important to stay sober than to try to get sober. Wisdom begins to use the ideas of that we find in knowledge and ensoul them, give character to them, give meaning to them, and bestow upon each one of them a dimension of growth. All growth has to be included. Knowledge has to grow. And the moment knowledge grows now, it becomes associated with fallacies because of inexperience. We are not able now to use knowledge in a dimension of growth. Actually, knowledge comes to us from the outside. The interpretation of knowledge comes to us from the inside. We are gradually learning that from the inside of ourselves, we have to explain the things that are happening in the outside world. Now, this isn't easy, because the things that are happening on the outside are inconsistent with most of the values that come from the internal life of the person. The thing that has made this matter endurable is the fact that the inside the wisdom of the individual has not been developed. Therefore, with the fallacies of the moment, there is no remarkable, intense rebellion from within him. Rebellion is a very individual matter. The individual who has enough misery and enough suffering decides to do what he can about it. On the other hand, many under the same provocation do nothing. But one of the problems is that knowledge is valuable only to the degree that it can be and sold.
that it can be enriched to become meaningful, to stand for something that will help. It's hardly necessary to define anger because everyone knows what it is. And nearly everyone understands it from personal experience. <clears throat> but for technical purposes, it is generally defined as an intense emotion caused by real or imaginary injury or insult. Now, in our actual daily living, we find it very easy to become angry. And it sort of develops from irritation or it becomes a temperamental habit over which we have ultimately very little control. It is wise to remember that we are always at a disadvantage the moment a negative emotion causes us to lose control of ourselves. The chances are 100 to 1 that the moment we cannot control and constructively direct emotion, we're going to get ourselves into worse situations than we find at the moment. Therefore, anger, hate, rage, all of these intensities become the cause of the further development of the situations which seem to generate them. In our psychological thinking, we know that a person who has unusual proclivity toward anger is nearly always in difficulties. An emotion, especially a negative one, draws the very circumstances uh, with which it becomes most concerned. Yet we know also that it is difficult sometimes, at least, not to be emotionally disturbed. Conditions seem to pile up and we gain the inevitable feeling that we are the victims of unfairness of some kind. And against this injury, we are inclined to develop a strong and rather dramatic attitude. Thus anger, like most of our emotions and negative thoughts, cannot be controlled merely by an energy of the will. This problem of trying to hold on to an emotion, prevent it from breaking away, trying desperately to inhibit or frustrate its expression, such a procedure is not good or healthy. Nearly all emotional excess arises from lack of basic philosophy of life, lack of basic integrity, lack of basic organization. Wherever these emotions are strong, the central core of the individual is weak. For the whole story is one of lack of self-control. The individual is not directing his own thoughts and emotions. 
He is the victim of them. They surge up, whether he permits it or not, having greater strength than his own will, and therefore drowning out whatever good intentions may have been present. If is, as the uh, dictionary and other standard texts tell us, that anger is most commonly caused by injury or insult, then we could consider these two possible sources. Let us take, perhaps, the most far-reaching first. I think we can say, generally, that insult rather than injury is the most common cause. The average individual is not greatly injured in terms of factual uh, debility or disablement. We very seldom have an enemy who hits us over the head with a club or something of that nature. That is a rare form of enemy. The kind of enemy we most generally have is the person who disagrees with us. And he is an ever-present adversary. And we really have no words strong enough to express how little we think of him. The great adversary is the one who does not see things our way. One of the greatest causes of anger in our lives is the fact that we are confronted with the decision which forces us to admit that we are wrong. This is enough to really upset the whole day. We are much more likely to feel insulted than we are to face the fact that our own attitude may have been incorrect. So we do not like people who reveal our own weaknesses to us. We do not like people who are stronger than we are. Not because they are stronger, but because we are weaker. We do not like people who outwit us in various activities. We do not like people whose decisions prove to be more correct than ours in long-range survey. And most of all, we do not like people who do not think that we are exceptional. Or if we are exceptional, the wrong kind of exception. All these things have a tendency to spoil our emotional climate. We become injured, not because they have hurt us, but because we cannot face the challenge of ourselves. Uh, Socrates, of course, was the kind of man you couldn't insult because he knew more about his own faults than anyone else could possibly discover. This type of person, however, is comparatively rare and in daily experience, probably such self-analysis would not be particularly profitable. But with all of this situation, it is basically true 
that most of our enemies are persons who disagree with us. Therefore, that we are all confronted with the problem of trying to live in the world with persons who are not of our mind. We must gradually get over the Aristotelian classification that there is only one right, and that is our side. And then there are all kinds of wrong, which are other people's side. We also have to recover from the conviction that we are injured because others do not agree with us. We are never really injured by disagreement. We are only injured when we cannot get along with ourselves. And that problem so often arises in connection with anger. Anger also opens us immediately to a most uh, disadvantageous position. Becoming angry, we will always lose judgment. We will begin to feel instead of think, and will probably make the situation infinitely worse. The more confused we become, the more angry we will become, until we may become totally enraged at an individual who declines to lose their equilibrium and join us in the general uh, discomfiture. We all pass through these experiences, and we wonder what we can do about them. Actually, there is a great deal that can be done. But so often, the best intentions fail in the moment when we need them most. We can build a wonderful philosophical attitude, but when someone is unpleasant, this attitude fails us and we immediately react to our old atavistic uh, premises and compulsions. Actually, the only way we can overcome any negative condition is the gradual development of a positive core inside of ourselves, a core that becomes real. And because it is real, it cannot be lost. Anything that can slip away from us under the slightest provocation is not real. Actually, the tendency to be angry in the life of the average person is more real than his self-control. That is why he becomes angry. If self-control is more real, he will not be angry. Yet with all these evidences, that we see coming from us every day of the weaknesses of our own attitudes, the fallacies of our own conduct, we still are unwilling to face the need for self-improvement. We try to dilute the whole problem and throw it upon society. We take the attitude that if everyone else was exactly what they ought to be, then we would be all right. This is a beautiful thought, but it just is not going to happen. Therefore, we have got to be right in spite of people instead of because of them. And we cannot wait for the universal reformation of mankind 
before we can improve ourselves. This in a smaller way means that we cannot wait until our own family changes or our own friends change or until our own employment differs from its present estate. These things have to be begun and worked through now, where we are and as we are, and in the kind of a world we are now living in. How then shall we make these internal positive statements real. One of the most available and common sources of inspiration in such matters, of course, is our religious conviction. Yet thousands of years of religious conviction have not been able to overcome the tendency to anger. Good religious people get just about as angry as anyone else. Why? Because, again, they have ignored the personal equation. They have thought of religion as something they were supposed to believe and not a way they were supposed to act. Thus, they substitute a belief for a code of conduct instead of causing the belief to motivate a proper code. As long as our convictions are not expressed through our conduct, we will not have any major change in our dispositional background, or foreground, for that matter. Philosophy helps. Philosophy gives us greater realization of the kind of world we live in, helps us to understand people, and most of all, gives us a sense of the universal justice which must underlie the forms of injustice with which we are constantly irritated. Consequently, we can say that philosophy strengthens our ability to see past the personal and toward the impersonal. Again, however, philosophy does nothing unless it helps us to live according to the principles which it teaches. Social experience may contribute to our understanding. When we begin to realize that perpetual compromise with principles and this condition of living almost constantly in a state of emotional upheaval is simply not good. Psychology helps us because it shows us that these emotional tensions are due to ourselves and further reveals the result of them upon the integrity of our own personality. We gradually come to face a decision. Are we going to get over these emotional stresses, or do we prefer to be sick and miserable? There is no other answer. We either must get well or pay the consequences. This decision, however, has not, for the most part, changed the majority of people who have been faced with it. It is exactly like the chronic alcoholic. He knows he is killing himself. He knows he is destroying his usefulness as a citizen, that he is betraying his family, and that he is ultimately going to pay a heavy price in misery for his conduct. 
but he still, in most instances, does not recover. He will not depart under threat of consequence. So today, uh, the threat of the negative result of action is not generally sufficient to cause a change in conduct. The person prefers to do as he pleases now. And for the most part, he pleases to give full expression to his negative instincts. Why has always been a question. But throughout history, it has been true that the negative is so old in man, going back millions of years, and the positive is so new, with only a few thousand years of background, that man is not able to balance these in his personal conduct. Also, the hope of a better state does not have the uh, allurement that it once had. The average person who is miserable today will not change simply because he was going to feel better if he does. You would think this would be a powerful inducement the self-respect of others, the improvement of his social condition, the probable improvement of his health. These positive inducements do not move him very much. Again, he is bound to the immediate reaction to pressure. He has no sense of not reacting as he feels when he feels. The answer here, of course, can only be one thing. And that is, for some reason, man, as a collective group, has never experienced the constructive result of self-discipline. We do not conceive of discipline as anything but punishment. The individual who is told that he should not do something is considered penalized. He considers himself deprived. The idea of discipline as a contribution to self-security and as a means of self-improvement has very little status with us. Discipline is a burden and a hardship. And we fear it more than we fear the consequences of undisciplined life. We hope that lack of discipline will permit us to live in a continuing state of doing what we want to now. And that sometime, somewhere, it may catch up with us, but on the other hand, we may not last that long anyway. This All this evasion problem uh, forms its part in this situation. Uh, foreigners coming to this country from various parts of the world, and we have had a tremendous influx of them in recent years, have all been amazed by one thing, and they have frequently mentioned it in books or articles which they have written. And that is the almost total lack of discipline which is obvious in the American way of life. Most of these persons have come from heavily disciplined types of background. 
heavy family discipline, heavy political control. They have never known the peculiar freedom that we have. They are amazed at the tremendous privilege which we collectively enjoy. But they also know very soon that we are not reacting to this constructively. We are using this opportunity merely as a means of gratification, not a means of integration of any particular kind. We interpret liberty as the right to do as we please, whereas there must be and always is, beyond this, a way that things should be done that is right. And the individual who does not cling to right must suffer. And where liberty is interpreted as the ability to do wrong without punishment, the person is in trouble. Now, there are a great many evils that cannot be punished by law, but can only be punished by their reaction within the person in terms of sickness or unhappiness. The individual who does not recognize rules governing conduct and is unwilling to live these rules must come in time to a disaster. He may realize this, but still he will not change his way. We have, however, a great, a considerable increasing number of persons who are trying sincerely to grow. And those who are really making a valiant effort should be given every possible encouragement and all available information to make their growth easier. And in this spirit, we want to analyze some of the phases of the anger problem in an effort to see through this weakness in our own organism. Now, we have people who take attitudes on this situation. We have a school of psychology which considers it important that the individual become angry once in a while. Well, I don't think they're going to have to worry too much. I don't think we need indoctrination in this direction. I think we will have enough of it, uh, regardless of any course that we pursue, to prevent total frustration. On the other hand, there is a grave question whether we do need it or not. The only reason why we need anger is because there's something wrong in us. It may be very much like the individual who needs another drink. Not because he really requires it, but because his alcoholism, already established, demands it. There is very grave question as to whether nature really finds it essential for a rational creature to be angry. But because everyone else is, we assume that it is a needed emotional reaction. It probably is needed in the individual who completely lacking self-control and unable to orient anything within himself is simply cannot merely frustrate the emotion. 
if it has reached a certain degree of dominance in the character of the person, probably he cannot restrain it. And perhaps he would become suddenly worse if he tried to. But all in all, the whole problem is a one of abnormal condition. Anger is abnormal. It is not part of the natural temperamental unfoldment of the individual. It is an extreme, and all extremes are dangerous. There is also the school that divides anger into various types. One of these is the righteous indignation group. The individual who believes that there are times and are conditions in which the individual is justified in being angry because of the circumstances themselves. That there are certain things that can happen and that if the individual in those situations is not angry, there's something wrong with him. We talk of righteous indignation and the wrath of God. And therefore, we assume that there must be some kind of anger that is justified. I doubt it. In the first place, any problem that is so real that we are inclined to be angry at it is also a challenging problem. And what we should be looking for is solution. And usually we will delay or completely destroy solution by emotional explosion. If a problem is so real that it causes us to be angry, it is a problem big enough to cause us to roll up our sleeves and solve it. And we will never solve it merely with anger. Because anger at the end will leave us weak and tired and the problem bigger than ever. So it's a grave question whether we can find one single situation in which anger or hate or wrath or rage will ever make a real contribution. Sometimes people feel that a little outburst of anger will frighten somebody else into a more reasonable attitude. If we can get angry before the other fellow does, we have sort of outwitted him, and he will have to retire abashed, unable to take the full weight of this little whirlwind that we have developed in ourselves. So we have a philosophy of got mad first, and in this way, discomfort the adversary, or sort of browbeat him into temporary acceptance. We also have a group in which anger seems possible in this way, that knowing that a person is touching easily irritated and likely to explode on the slightest notice. There is a tendency to cater to such people. Don't stir them up. Whatever they want, give it to them. Save a seat. This is commonly known as capitalizing on a liability. To make 
uh, a bad disposition profitable to some purpose that we have in mind. This is commonly done, but still is not any more right than any other negation. The individual who uses a bad disposition to control others is no different psychologically in his guilt mechanisms from the person who uses blackmail or any other wrong means of attaining a desired end. And where anger is used to exploit others, nature has delightful punishment waiting. That is, that gradually the person loses control of his ability to control his own temper fits. And little by little, the moods which he assumes become natural to him. And he ends up with a thoroughly bad disposition and all the consequences. In the end, it costs him more than he can possibly gain by these temperamental outbursts. So as we go down the line, we find very little actual constructive result. Now in the course of working with folks, we have a great many people who come in who have had long and difficult feuds. Many of these have lasted for a lifetime. Sometimes they are bequeathed unto our issue as a heritage. We are supposed to hate the relatives our ancestors didn't like. This situation of bad blood in the life of the individual is usually unfolded in great detail as an explanation for all kinds of misfortunes. The person is telling us how they have suffered, how they have been forced to desperation, and all the horrible things that other folks have done to them. But what they always forget to do is to tell us what they did to the other folks. And once in a while, situations line up so that we do get both sides. And I assure you, there are nearly always two sides. And the person who has gradually permitted himself to cultivate negative attitudes has become a terrible problem for other people. And therefore, by degrees, fulfills for himself all of the negative fears that were once only imaginary. But in time, he can make them happen if he nurses them lovingly enough. All these things point out that we need some basic philosophy, some basic integrity with which to combat our more common human instincts. As I've said, uh, religion could help, but it generally doesn't, because we will not apply it. We will accept it, we will talk about it, we will try to convert other people to it, but we will not sit down to the quiet daily process of living it. There isn't enough glamour involved. Also, when we do live it, we usually come upon a minor crisis. For the moment we change our ways, everyone is duly astonished. And some folks won't believe it. So usually we do have a short period of difficulty. 
and that most often discourages the would-be self-reformer because he does not come into peace and happiness in 24 hours, he gives it up as a bad job. He never really wanted to do it anyway, as one told me. And this uh, modified incentive cannot produce great effect. So in the problem of anger, we have, to, we have to sort of rationalize one of the simplest methods of of uh, handling the problem is through the delayed reaction. The power of anger is usually summarized in an outburst. If any method can be devised to delay the uh, outburst, it will usually disintegrate. If you can even count the proverbial ten before you get angry, you've already reduced the probability 50%. And if you can make it to 100, you're practically in the clear. Because in order to be thoroughly angry, you must not think. And anything that gives you an, ep an interlude for thoughtfulness, in which you are not too greatly plagued by this emotional intensity, will do a great deal of good. I know people who have been very successful they, in this respect, that whenever they have been moved to react negatively against anyone, whenever they've heard a bit of gossip and they've decided to tell somebody what they think, or whenever they are convinced that they have been the victim of an injustice and they're just going to move, move right in and clear it up, these people who have followed a simple formula, namely the 24-hour breather, have succeeded very well in coping with the situation. Uh, perhaps you have noticed in the international affairs that nearly always great changes come very suddenly. We remember the Depression. 1929, a few days before the Depression, we were assured that the financial condition of the country was never better, that we had nothing to look forward to but prosperity. Crash. Now, since that time, we have had several very long periods of anxiety about depression, worrying about it wondering whether it was going to happen or not. It didn't. The reason being that if you allow enough time, the intensities which cause violent actions wear off, and the violent action is much less likely to occur. Same thing with war. If there is a three-month agitation, there'll be no war. But if the war hits within 24 hours of the first insult, you will have war. But not if you wait. Because by the time you wait long enough, everyone talks themselves out of action. Also, somebody does a little rationalizing somewhere in the picture. It begins to figure how expensive it's going to be. 
or perhaps they are going to lose. And that gives caution. So the great emotional changes and outbursts must be quick. For if we consider them, they evaporate. And that has been the example of history for a very long time. And it is the same thing with individuals. I've known persons who are going to sit down and write that letter and tell someone just what kind of a heel they really were. They waited for 24 hours. The letter was never written. Because by that time, that character, that particular heel had slipped into the background. There was another one that had appeared since. <laughs> there was a new crisis. For people who have that attitude are in a state of perpetual crisis anyway. And, of course, in many instances, a great harm was saved, inasmuch as the person who was to receive the letter may not really have been nearly as much of a heel as they were supposed to be. And in checking these cases, we find that... The reason why Mr. Jones believed that his friend needed the letter in the first place was because his friend wouldn't loan him money. And the friend had already loaned him money and never gotten it back. So there was a whole series of causes back of this thing. And the great thing that makes heels out of people is that they do not do what we want them to, whether we are right or wrong. So if we will allow the 24-hour cool-off, most anger will have a tendency uh, to subside. Now another type of anger, which is uh, rather difficult, is the anger that is due to fatigue. And this is quite common in families, and particularly in the relation of parents to very boisterous and animated children who are enough to wear the body and mind to exhaustion. There's nothing really wrong with the children, except we are a little envious of the fact that they have so much more vitality than we do. And they seem to be building theirs at the expense of ours. <laughs> so in the moment of fatigue, we get angry. And we say something or we do something. Now, if the parent is essentially, basically, well-adjusted. The minor outbursts that come from fatigue or exhaustion are seldom very detrimental in their results. I've never been able to find that children were really damaged by that rare outburst of an exasperated parent, because children are also subconsciously far more intelligent than we realize. They know of how difficult they can be, whether they're admitting it or not. And they are seldom, if ever, psychologically injured by a legitimate reprimand of any kind. They are far more injured by not being disciplined at all. So if the parent is basically fair and honest, and has a good, solid consciousness of values, the occasional, occasional slip away into excess will not be seriously detrimental. 
It is where the parent is basically neurotic, has basically a critical disposition, and therefore puts too much weight upon these outbursts, has them too frequently, and frequently allows them to arise over situations that do not justify them, or in haste have condemned or criticized a child for an action which that child did not perform. Where there is injustice or an unreasonable attitude which offends the child's basic sense of right, then you will have trouble. And this is true to a great degree in life also. The average person who is well-oriented, it may well be that anger is no asset, but it will be forgiven if it is under tremendous provocation. But the individual who is angry continuously without adequate provocation is a nuisance and will always be so. The moment we find a dissatisfaction which seems to be real, we have the power of doing something about it. The thing that does the least good is to get mad. For during the period of anger, no solutional program can be devised that means anything. Wherever there is something that displeases us, here is a demand upon our positive mental and emotional resources. We grow through meeting adversity, through solving difficulty. We do not grow by simply being mad at anything. If, however, there is a situation, we have an opportunity to use it as a valuable experience text following the Pythagorean discipline of uh, sort of a retrospective analysis of life, we can sit down and we can say to ourselves, I've been more edgy recently than is good for me. I'm having more people around me I don't like. I'm more critical of the way everyone acts. And I find a tendency to have these people stay away. My social life is falling apart. What is wrong with me? This is the beginning of analysis. The beginning of consideration. Now, there are many things we may find. One may be simple fatigue. If fatigue is the cause, then we must find ways of solving this problem. And one of the ways always to solve fatigue problem is to conserve energy. Because we are tired, because our energy is not equivalent to our need, or we have a high toxic rate that is making our energy unavailable to us. Negative thoughts and emotions are the principal cause of toxicity and the principal cause of fatigue. Today, the person who is physically overworked is in the hopeless minority, not one in a hundred. But the individual who is wearing himself out mentally and emotionally over his work, his name is Legion. Almost everyone is in this predicament. 
So if the fatigue factor is there, all the more reason why there shall be no time lost and no energy wasted in irritation, where it is going to make the fatigue worse. If we find through a certain amount of analysis that this tendency to get angry easily has always been with us, and we know that we come by it honestly because we had an uncle who had temper fits. Or we had a grandmother who had spasms. We know that we come honestly by this emotion. And because we come honestly by it, we regard it as inevitable. And settle, set back and settle down to enduring it. That is no answer either. There is no inevitable necessity for a bad disposition. But if we have long cultivated it, and it's just gotten a little worse by degrees, because of habitual repetition, then we better sit down and do something about it quick. Because it will ultimately wreck our lives and destroy us. So we also observe as we go along, that we are functioning according to a little pattern of likes and dislikes. Most persons have built out of their own experience and their own reflections about it, a private universe, a universe in which they are the principal citizen, the supreme autocrat, and the more or less cosmic lawmaker. In this universe, which is invisible, because if it was visible, we couldn't stand it ourselves. In this universe, everything is the way we demand it to be. It is a kind of hidden world. When anything goes wrong, we retire into it. And if anyone comes out with any remark or thought contrary to this private autocracy of ours, we suffer from what is called righteous indignation. So we have to begin to look over this private universe. And we find that very much like the alcoholic or the narcotic addict, or individuals uh, addicted to gluttony or almost any other excess, that our private motivation in living is largely one of negation. The individual today, like a highly toxic uh, sufferer from health, is really living on his irritation rather than his energy. If he ever found himself in a quiet frame of mind, he would think he was dying. <laughs> Feel a total collapse creeping over him. He hasn't relaxed for so long the experience would be unbelievable and very dangerous as far as his own diagnosis is concerned. But having these values, what have we got inside of us? Something that we must, by a sense of loyalty, defend against other people. And we study these folks, and I've worked with a great many of them. Why are they angry? Why are they upset? Why are they miserable? Well, a whole group of them, a certain, every four years, are totally miserable 
and mad because the wrong individual is elected president. If someone else got in, there would be an equal number because this other person would be the wrong one. Then there are individuals who cannot pick up the morning paper without getting mad at something, perhaps at everything, very often at the paper and its policy. But the, they cannot read about somebody in the neighborhood building a church without being angry about it. They cannot read about someone else trying to integrate a school without being angry about it. They cannot read or study any dis development in art, science, literature, or anything else without being angry. Because all these things that happen some way step upon private toes attitudes that we regard as essential to character. We are going to hold on to them. And anyone who differs from us gets the tirade. All of the thing is totally absurd. And yet this absurdity has broken homes and ruined lives for thousands of years. The answer to a large part of it is to wake up to the fact that other people have rights. That it is perfectly possible for us to live happily in a world in which there are people who are minding their own business in their own way and are making their own private mistakes. If, however, we are observant of our private mistakes, we will probably have little time to be over-worried about others. Now, there is a point of helpfulness. There are times we read the newspaper and we see things and we hear about things and we hurt inside. There's no doubt about it. We're sorry. We're unhappy because we do not like to see people unhappy. We, do, we wish there was some way that common sense could be born in these people that they would get over certain attitudes that are not right. We can feel very gently sorrowful. And we can try in every way that we know to equip ourselves to be helpful in any possible way that we can. But there's a great difference between a gentle analysis, a kindly thought, a wish that we could do good, a prayer for these people that they may do better between this kind of a reaction and just plain hate or anger. There are many things in this world for which we can be sorrowful and a little regretful. But there are very few things that cannot be transmuted from anger to quiet, regretful acceptance if we are willing to face the facts. Face the facts that these people must grow by their own experience, not by ours, and that what may be good for us may not be good for them, and that regardless of whether it would be good for them or not, they cannot accept it. For at the same time, we are saying that other people are closed-minded, we are very likely the same way ourselves on something else.
Thank <laughs> you.